From the Clock Tower Mountain Air, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. Welcome to our book club, and thank you for joining us in Season 2 as we make our way through the Ransom Trilogy. In this episode, we are talking about That Hideous Strength, Chapters 6 through 10, and spoiler alert, if you haven't read along with us to this point and would like to, pause here, go read, and come and join us. Our next episode will be chapters 11 through 14 of That Hideous Strength. Housekeeping. Do we have anything for our people? Ooh, I don't really have anything. No confessionals. No... I guess next episode, if you heard the numbers and realized 11 through 14 is only four chapters. We're messing with you. We're going to try to do four episodes of That Hideous Strength. So the next episode will be four chapters. And then the following and final episode will be three chapters long. So I think that's 15 through 17. I love it. Uh, My one housekeeping point, I've heard from a couple of our book club members about questions they have or just how much they're enjoying that hideous strength and how this book does carry with it. It's got some gravitas. And so just kind of that, hey, we're excited to hear you talk about it, which is always that wonderful weight that we love to bear going into <laughs> recording. Well, we're excited, <laughs> we're excited. To talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's going to be good. So uh, I will kick off and read the summary. Mark Studdick accepts a probationary position and is cajoled into participating in the manufacture of the disturbances and riot in Edgestow in order to secure emergency powers for the NICE. He falls in and out of favor with the inner ring until he consents to meet the head. Overwhelmed by his introduction to the head and suspicious of the motives of the NICE to procure his wife, Mark attempts to escape only to be arrested, framed for murder. Meanwhile, Jane Studdick continues to have dreams which she shares with the company at St. Anne's and is eventually introduced to the Pendragon. Her experience convinces her to join with the company, but she must first try to bring Mark. Upon return to Edgestow, she is arrested by Fairy Hardcastle and tortured. She escapes in the chaos of the riot and returns to St. Anne's, where she has another dream which clarifies for the company the motives of the NICE. These, um... Summaries. <laughs> a little tough with this book. You're bouncing back and forth between two really deep stories going on. Yeah. I was listening to the summary from the last episode and I, I got confused and I wrote it. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully somebody's heeded our advice to go read the chapters before they came. That's here. right. So the summary is <laughs> n- not that helpful. <laughs> so, where do you want to go with themes, Alex? I want to focus on the comparison between obedience and compulsion and how both the powers, the NICE and the company at St. Anne's use their respective motivator uh, in order to get compliance and why, and that how that can be a tool in understanding stuff like religion versus cult and, uh, being sheeple versus shepherd. I don't know. But like there, I think there's a lot of that confusion and motivation every time somebody wants to talk poorly about 
a religious person, they use cult mentality. Yeah, assuming that the religion uses NICE type motivations, yeah, it might be a cult. But if you're invited toward obedience and you learn to direct your heart toward goodness, um, obedience and and compulsion look very similar to the uninitiate. And I think you kind of have to take the risk of being drawn in and joining something and in order to keep yourself safe and making appropriate risks and not just becoming a pawn despite yourself or yeah, becoming a pawn intentionally rather than being wrapped up in being a pawn through deception. I, I love that you highlighted that because it reminds me, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk a bit about McPhee yeah. because he's such a good character. And um, but he's talking to Jane, and she's she's I think she's feeling a little bit defensive for the director, which I think they all kind of do. They they don't quite understand where he's going from, and she says, "Well, there well there is. It's kind of this last ditch comment. There there is such a thing as loyalty." And he looks at her, I can't remember the line it says, but like with intensity and it's like, of course there's loyalty, but to what? Right. Anyways, like that type of thing, like this, this guy seems totally unmoored from committing to any certain thing, but deeply understands loyalty and says something like when you're older, you'll understand. But I don't, I don't want to take us too far. We'll, we'll get there, but that's, I love that you're bringing that up. So my thing that stood out to me was around science meeting the spiritual and you see that in McPhee and how he interacts with the Pendragon and how you're trying to, he's, he's the, the skeptic yeah. that Ransom actually sees as necessary and crucial and important. And then obviously the spiritual Ransom who's interacting with the Yarsa and the, the Eldil. And then inside the NICE, you have Strake, who is really discomforting or disquieting for Mark, because every time they're trying to talk at their elite uh, inner ring or their their esoteric, yeah, every time they're trying to have their elitist conversations and their their esoteric understanding among each other in the inner ring, he starts spouting off about the resurrection and Jesus and all these prophecies coming true. And he doesn't know how to really grasp that. And then there's the whole part about it talking about how the tale finally meets. Old science couldn't quite get to, it was too material and real to get to actually folding back on itself to get to this mysticism, which they've now gotten to again with resurrection and this eternal man and whatever else. So Anyways, I thought it was cool to see science and spirituality somehow connecting in in good ways and obviously nefarious ways. Yeah, Mark's education is described as being neither scientific nor classical, merely yeah. modern. Yeah. <laughs> and how somebody like um like Hingist is from that old school of similar to McPhee, McPhee yeah. where they are so they they take their loyalty is so strong to empiricism even to materialism but to um to logic and reason 
to the point where they don't think they have opinions. Both of them make comments along those lines. I just make observations and exhibit implications (laughs) rather than have opinions. But that there's something more honorable to that. They like Hingis wouldn't dabble in or mess around in mud or dabble in blood or something like that. And now the more modern mind, which thinks it's being empirical, but is also willing to just be, I guess, postmodern, uh, to be, um, carried away in some, in both scientism and mysticism, not science, but scientism and mysticism to where it's all just this fight for power and competition and crawling to the top while pretending you're not doing that. And so there's a lot of hidden motives, which means nobody can communicate clearly. Like Busby said in the earlier chapters, we're all saying the same thing, right? Wink. And they're not saying any of the same things. And they're all just kind of competing with each other. And and Busby, Busby gets burned eventually yeah. by that. Even, even in these chapters, his relationship with, with Feverstone has a falling out because the people at the progressive element at Bracton College realized they were just dupes. They were used as pawns for the NICE. And they, for a brief moment, at least in the process of getting the NICE to Edgestow, really believed that was the process toward, or, you know, that was the progression that they wanted from the progressive element. Hmm. I love it. Before we get into the chapters, let's take a break. All right, welcome back. Uh, so, let's jump into chapter six. Yeah. One of the first things that I loved is Jane has this concern that, you know, you see this from the first five chapters, but about being drawn in. And so now she goes back to Edge Stowe. She's still having these dreams. And it talks about how she was withholding some of the information in hopes their group would come out to her and offer some of that comfort that she's seeking and some of that peace that she does feel when she's with these people. But she didn't want to have to go out to their, where, they're, where they're at, and she didn't want to have to get drawn in by this Mr. Fisher King. Right, yield to some man, yeah. some power that everybody almost sycophantically is talking so highly of in a way that is very off-putting to her, at least her sentiments and understanding of equality and who she thinks she is, right? Yeah, and it's something I I can relate to a lot. I think a lot of us, when we see something good and we want to commit, um, there's also part of us that worry about looking like a sheeple. Oh, yeah. And I think there's a little bit of an, there needs to be a little bit of an acceptance on our part that you are going to look a little bit like a sheeple. When you're putting on your, your tie and headed off to church on Sundays, you will be seen like that by some people. And that's okay. Yeah, we can pretend that our egos and our characters are the center of the universe, you know, but that's lo- that's believing a lie. And at some point we do have to yield to something. I was thinking about uh, Rabidash and the horse and his boy, so unwilling to look ridiculous that he actually became ridiculous and became a donkey because of it, right? That idea of wanting to be an individual, un, 
unhampered or unencumbered by the sentimentalities of the human experience. Uh, You know, you see this with Mark. Mark thinks he's beyond all of these human. He even he even thinks it's um, a good quality and is proud that he starts having these conversations with detestable people and personalities, but enjoying the conversation despite the awful personality of the person he's in conversation yeah. with. He thinks that's a sign of maturity because he thinks he's gotten over the, the, the subjectivity or over the sentimentality of being human. But all that does is make him totally manipulatable by exactly the sentimental. So there's, there's this push against you. We can pretend that we can of our own power and own importance overcome all of the external and emotional human pressures. We can become heads that are so overpowering of our hearts, but that's eventually will be used somehow, you know, but that pre it's just not a true thing. It's not true to be able to think of yourself as the center of the universe. Yeah. Uh, Lewis does something interesting with the perspectives that he uses, how he writes the stories, because you're, it's it's a third person narrative, someone who's telling you what's going on in the story, but still it's almost like you're sitting in Mark's corner as they talk about it. And you obviously get more insight into what Mark's thinking is as you talk through these things. But every once in a while there's there's like when he meets with, and this is jumping ahead a bit, but with what's that guy's name? Dribble duh, starts with a D. Dimble? Dimble when he meets with Dimble or when he's writing his article for the newspaper and it says it felt good to be, to be full of alcohol, but not drunk where I feel like Lewis just kind of jars you out of it enough to see what, what Mark's becoming with these people. And especially with Dimble, you all of a sudden see like he, the impact that this, this thought process and his actions are this path that's taking him down and what it's turning him into. What about his interaction with Dimble helped you see that? Yeah. So with Dimble and Mark, Mark leaves immediately after the fairy and Mr. Frost essentially accuse him of murder, right? And uh, and tell him he's protected. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Leaves immediately. And originally the thought on his mind, I believe, was go save Jane, like go warn her. Yeah. Something changes. As soon as he meets with the head, I think what the head demands of him is to go, is to bring his wife and he right. consents to it. And at first he's like, nothing matters. I need to get Jane and bring her here. And then something changes. What changes about that to change his perspective from bringing Jane into this um, versus protecting Jane from it? I don't, I mean, I'm thinking it was being accused of murder, but what? Yeah, was there a I almost feel you... like there's these awful powers from these people like Hardcastle or Wither that I'm not sure if they know when to stop. Yeah. Didn't the, I felt like the murder thing felt excessive. It did. At that point, Mark was so bought in, he'd gone and met the head. And then I I almost, it caught me off guard that they called him in and then were trying to blackmail him with even more stuff. It felt excessive. Well, he had, he had tried to leave and he sees the wraith of Wither yeah, walking around and it, he's like totally dejected. He has the all of the, maybe he's already decided to go and I'm not sure if he's, he just wants to leave. He's so uncomfortable. Everything's becoming more and more serious. He wants to leave. He comes back. Um, 
Yeah, it's difficult. There's, but there is a moment, and I think it's just this point where I think it actually is divine assistance because he has this moment of disinterested love. Disinterested. That's the line I was thinking of. Yeah. For Jane. And I don't know if it comes at like a final realization or if this is the lifeline sent from maybe the Mel Eldil himself yeah. to rescue Mark out of this. And, and interesting, it, the disinterested love is, I wish she would have never married me. Yeah. It wasn't about him. He saw his fate as sealed in a bad direction. <laughs> yeah, right. But, um, you know, he was hoping for her good regardless of his own. That was cool. Yeah, so he's being battered around by these people, using him as a toy almost playing with him his motives it's you're in you're out you're you're safe you're secure you're almost being expelled from this group and then yeah. knowing after he meets the head that if he were to leave it would mean death and it's then where he gets that divine assistance because everything else it's almost like there's the powers are too heavily weighted on one side there's some other really good lines about how mark could write about um is it euthanasia or is it uh what's the word vivisection he could write about vivisection he could write about um what do they call it when they're you're cleansing genocide yeah sorry uh he could write about genocide but he couldn't actually watch the lady drink her last cup of cocoa 10 days before the you know, end, she, right? the end, or you know, and he used, or someone sent to where they're going to be executed or whatever. And so he, there was this detachment from actual, like, real death, like reality, uh, materialism, right? And maybe confronting the head and his own death opens the window for him to be able to receive a little bit of this inspiration, a little bit of real love for Jane. Yeah, the first threat of death, the book says, sent him sprawling because he had strength of will, but not strength of nerve. Instead of overcoming the sentimental, he's just ignored it and pretended that yeah. it wasn't an issue. And then when you you have to confront that, that's when it really showed the, his lack of discipline in his nerve. He doesn't know how to deal with the actual sentimental aspects of genocide he can talk about it academically but he has no capability of handling it that's why when people say you know every once in a while and even i'll do this um especially somebody who's trained as a psychologist it's easy to say i don't do the emotions thing or i've got the emotions thing down i'd rather just you know let's talk unemotionally or get past all that but nobody has a pass on emotions Except for psychopaths. So, I mean, take note. <laughs> um, but if you do have to engage with emotions, what's the line? If you have to see ghosts, it's better that you do not disbelieve yeah. in them. <laughs> right? In, in the same way, if you're going to experience the sentimental pressures, if you're going to experience the emotionality, you better be somebody who has practiced and disciplined them. Think of the conversation with Dimble, how practiced and disciplined he is in his own moral guidance. He's got this introspection where he's even worried that he's not being entirely fair 
Mark says something like, you've never liked me. And that hit home to Dimble more than Mark realized because Dimble was worried that he actually didn't like Mark. And he felt bad about not liking him. So this, this is what I love is Mark leaves with a good intention of warning Jane. By the time he gets through the forest and he gets to his house, realizes she's gone, he has this feeling of an upset husband and sees the note from Dimble and oh, I never they never really liked me anyways. And so now he gets to be a blustery husband, which which he he grasps onto because it gives him kind of a lifeline out of the world that he's been interacting with, right? And then with Dimble, on the other hand, during this interaction, I love that it keeps pointing to Mark is misreading Dimble the entire time because all Dimble's trying to do is hold on to his charity when he's not feeling super charitable and he's not grasping the lifeline. Everything Mark's doing, I mean, he is responsible for what's happening with Jane at some level, which that's Dimble talks to him about. But that's the difference in my mind. Well, huge, important distinction between the two sides is Mark and the NICE, they will take whatever rationale will comes to their mind, whatever physical ra- rationale comes to, comes to them in order to escape truth or escape making progress as an individual. While Dimbles over here has every reason in the world to let go of charity for a minute and to hate this person and yet is trying to hold on to it and you know says, I'm not going to go to my death with false words on my tongue. <laughs> Right. I love this guy. Yeah. <laughs> One question I had that I think ties into this is after meeting the head, after experiencing what he just did with Wither and, and Hardcastle, after talking to Philostrato and he's explaining that he wants to essentially turn the whole wor- or earth into some metallic, inorganic creation, and then their philosophy behind well, will everybody eventually have eternal life? No, it'll just all be one. Maybe it'll be you, maybe it'll be me. But anyways, the future he is painting is hell. I mean, you see why Mark gets sucked in and everything else, but how are you not, how does this not shake you awake? How does this not wake you up to to where this line of thinking and this logic and the philosophy and everything. And it's this, you know, it's mysticism from Strake or whatever you want to call his spirituality. And it's, it's scientism from Philostrato. And, but why? Because the, the end picture they're painting just is bleak. And it almost, they, they almost see themselves as expendable and burned by the wayside at some point as well. In yep. this overarching goal that they all have, which is ugly. That reminds me of, Thoyars of Malacandra talking to Weston. And Weston saying, goes on and on, and humanity will go on and on. But what if what happens when the world ends? It will jump to another world. And then when all worlds end? So the the corner in the argument that Mel that um that Malacandra has on Weston is he's willing to go use the logic continually, take it to, you know, the turtles all the way down. Weston will only take the logic until it gives him justification for doing what he's doing. He's being utilitarian about the logic. As soon as that happens, as soon as Malachandra says that what happens after every, all worlds end, I think Weston accuses Malachandra of being defeatist. And 
that's what you see. You see this utilitarian mindset. They don't really believe even the things they're saying themselves. It's all to just get closer to the inside. More power. It's like Mark forgets how awful everybody is every time he sees, oh, I got past steel. I got in further than steel did. Even to the point where he realizes he gets in further than Feverstone. And instead of waking him to say, hey, you're expendable too, obviously. It just makes him feel, oh, I'm getting it. I'm, I'm, I'm eating the, the fruit right now. I'm getting all the thing that I'm after. You know, let me at those red centers. You know, let me have all of the thing that I want right now because I don't really believe in anything beyond what, you know, what I've put up as the most important thing. So, yeah, so you, what you're shooting at is he's blind to it, to this hell that they're trying to drive this truck towards because it's purely self-centered. It's it's total ego. Right. And, and, and if because... you can focus on just being an old professor one day and sitting back in your armchair talking about how you were this important person in this big organization, <laughs> you've totally lost... Um, if that's if that's your image that you've painted of what the ideal world looks like, even when Philostrato's sitting there telling you about this hellscape that that he's shooting to create, you can somehow get past that. Yeah, it's all in the abstract. They can't feel it. You can't feel what it means to go through any of these the awfulness of being dissolved or assimilated into this this ego that cares nothing for you at all. The image that's coming to mind is if you've seen the movie Fantasia and they do the night on bald mountain, it's this big mountain created with a peak is a, this demon character that comes alive at night and you have all these like ghouls crawling off him and he just kind of like brushes them off and they fall into you. <laughs> the oblivion, the chasm below. And it's like, they're all desperate to get close to this big demon. And then he doesn't even care at all about them. And if you see that that's, if that's what you believe reality is, Maybe not in such a mystical way, but let's say your belief of existence is you live, you pay taxes, and you die. Not to say that that's not true in a very physical and mortal way, but if you think that that's all there is, you know, you can pretend that, oh, the look up at the cosmos, at the Milky Way, look at, look at the grandeur. Isn't it incredible that the universe is so much bigger than us and then we'll just die? I mean, you can say those kind of humanistic uh, materialistic sort of pithy type doctrines, but you can't actually feel what that means because annihilation is terrifying. And if you ever had to contend with the emotional experience of your imminent annihilation, you would probably be singing a different tune. The only re way I know that is in history, we have plenty of stories of what people do as they go kicking and screaming into the beyond and they don't have a belief of the beyond. If you're going to see ghosts, it's better that you not, not disbelieve in them. And so you can just pretend. Let's pretend we can, we can build out this hellscape in our fantasies, but if we don't ever have to feel it, it actually seems like a, like a mark of maturity. You know, I'm going to die and then I won't exist anymore. Doesn't that sound mature for me to say that? And if I'm not going to exist anymore, Philostrato's final point of his argument is, well, even if we don't believe in God, 
it doesn't say anywhere we couldn't create God. Right. So <laughs> his justification for everything is, well, I can at least say I created a God before I was, I don't know. Right. Absorbed and, by it. And <laughs> even, if the, it, even if all that means is that we've created this tortuous immortality for creatures, whether they want it or not, it, the horror of that doesn't like totally destroy anything, any other motivation that you could have. The horror of that right there is enough to, to run away, <laughs> to leave the NICE, right? Yeah. There's another line that I really liked when he's pulled into the inner circle between 10 and midnight around the fire, whatever it is. And they're explaining their planned riot. And the line is, of that intimate laughter between fellow professionals, which of all earthly powers is strongest to make men do very bad things before they are yet individually very bad men. I haven't been around a hearth late at night with a bunch of academics discussing how to plan riots that would lead to the death of hundreds or thousands of people. But I can relate to this. When you're among people who you at least consider friends or important to you and subjects are brought up or things are said that I think if you were alone, it'd be pretty easy for you to identify you don't agree with, but that you would at the very least stay quiet and go along with it. And this is one of those lines that I love from Lewis that strengthens my resolve to look out for those situations and to say something. Yeah. Imagine you're somebody who doesn't think that they're impressionable. And then you're finally in this circle of people that all of your motivation despite you being unaware of it, is to fit in and to belong. And then sandwiched between two jokes comes the temptation. That's the way that Lewis puts it in his inner circle essay, that that's when it will come. You have to be an expert at understanding your own motivations. You have to be totally accepting that you are a physical person with hormones that feels the pull of serotonin, <laughs> you know, and appetites, appetites, exactly that so much of your lived experience is a mood, not just a resolve. You can have a resolve and then the, and then the moods come and change. That's how strong your resolve has to be is to be able to withstand all of those those sentimental pressures. But if you deny that sentimental pressures are important or that they have any pull on you and you never practice that muscle because you think you are quote unquote above it. What was the line used for Mark? It'll knock you to the floor. Yeah, or it'll send you sprawling. Send you sprawling. So you need to be aware of your motivations. You see that in Dimble. He's totally aware of even his pettiness. You read the, that dialogue, he doesn't seem petty at all. He seems very controlled. And yet he knows how affected he is by the sentimental. And so he's capable of keeping it in check. Remember last episode, we were talking about judgmental people who say that they don't judge. You can't not judge. Your whole life is judging. So when Jesus tells us not to judge, what he's saying is don't condemn don't use the judgment that is reserved for me. He's not saying don't discern. We don't use that word discernment very much 
in our modern language. We use judgment in the same way that we use love. It's this blanket term that we place on anything and give it this bad connotation whenever it means judging us. Because we don't want other people to know us when we're trying to withhold all our motivations from them. We can't not judge. Everybody is different than you. And so where people are different than you, you're making that judgment. Are they different than you in a way that you ought to adopt? If you're so defensive and your motivation is to establish your ego as important, not to say I can become better and learn from other people and differences of, of opinion, differences of background and personal histories, differences of experience, maybe yield to authority now and then if I've judged that authority be to be trustworthy. How am I going to judge that authority to be trustworthy? What do they want from me? What do they want from other people? Do I see that person treating other people that are below them well? Well, then I can trust probably that they're treating me well. Or when they say, make a judgment on me, maybe I can trust that judgment. There are all these evidences. You can't know the truth directly. This is the, oh, sheesh, opening cans oh, of words. Oh, sheesh. <laughs> <laughs> well, because as soon as I said that, I thought of, of Kantian phenomenology, right? You, we don't have access to the objective truth directly. The best we can do is a synthesis of our experience and the experiences of other people. Well, let's take a break and come back. I think we haven't even touched on the Jane and the Pendragon meeting too much, marriage. <laughs> There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot. Yeah, let's take a break. All right, I want to make sure we get to this before we go to our section of the book that we're going to listen to. Um, I love the character of McPhee. And the whole time I'm reading it, I'm thinking, Alex loves this guy. And it reminded me of Trumpkin and Ransom's comment about he's our skeptic and we need him. And they have this very close relationship. But then when they go off to battle and McPhee wants to come with them, he says, you don't have the protection of Maleldil. You can't come. You will be like a three-year-old going against a tank. Yeah. So what did you see? What do you see in that character? That's instructional for you. Everything that's good about that character, we can already feel. The loyalty to logic, to evidence, it's all very good, but it's missing one thing. He's not willing faith. to... Faith. Faith and, and obedience, even to the director. He says, in this moment of crisis, I'm willing to profess a belief in the Eldils or even the Oyerasu. Yeah, I thought I thought when he said that, Ransom would say, okay, you know, that's yeah. enough mustard seed, we'll take it. But no. No, the obedience that you had to be get there before you were compelled to it. It's the difference between the compulsion and the obedience. He even says that something like that to Jane. He says that he's not able to lose or allowed, like the powers won't let him, talking about the Yorasu, he's not allowed to use desperate remedies. Unless there's desperate diseases. That's right. Yeah. The, he's not allowed to use desperate remedies until desperate diseases are really apparent. Otherwise, we become just like our enemies. 
breaking all the rules whenever we imagine that it might possibly do some vague good to humanity in the remote future. Right. It mirrors that line that Ransom had to Weston in that first conversation on the spaceship. That we can pretend that our motives are moral by creating some abstract good in the future that we're really working for. But we can't feel that. All we can feel is what's going on right now. And so if our behavior is, I mean, what authority do we have? Maybe God does have that authority because God can see the, f- the future. And so sometimes we go through very difficult situations here and now because for some good in our future. But we don't have that authority over other people over each other. I can't treat you like that using desperate measures, lie to you in order to get you to do something that I know eventually will, or no, in quotes, will eventually be good for you, right? Because I'm, I don't have, I can't live in the future. I'm only living right now. And, uh, and you see that in, the company at St. Anne's. None of them are ever willing to lie. And I think that's exactly why. I think Lewis is trying to to teach something or at least show us something with this importance of McPhee to Ransom and to their company. Yet it's jarring for a lot of the other members of the company where they have a hard time even liking each other sometimes maybe. I like how he says, I'm going to order you guys to be married if you keep <laughs> bickering. <Right. laughs> um, and so how we, I mean, if we're on the spectrum, how do we have a, a healthy amount of the McPhee to how we direct ourselves towards God? And then how do we have a healthy amount of Jane or, or Grace Ironwood or these other characters? Yeah, it reminds me of Lewis's own experience with conversion. He got to the point where he was a reluctant convert. His logic took him to this place and he realized that it was more important for him to, because he, he had the love of, of mythology and it was that that allowed him to take his logical mind to where it needed to go. He was butting up against a reluctance or a recalcitrance to accept something that he saw as mythology as actually being true. He was being unempirical because he wasn't accepting more evidence. And that's what McPhee's problem is. He's a skeptic. That's good. But skepticism needs to have a purpose. It needs to lead you to truth. And he's intentionally putting this blinder up or pretending that he doesn't see these evidences and what he qualifies as evidence is, is whittled down to almost this meaningless thing because he's not willing to accept anything beyond, beyond nature. He's not willing to, he's apparently he gives away that he's been in the presence of the Oyerasu in Ransom's throne room before yeah and he's like he just chalks it up to possibly and he doesn't even say it it didn't happen he's he just, just un- trying to leave this door open very wither-esque leave the door open right. for it well maybe it was an apparition when if you had to pin him down and you said what percent chance do you think it was an apparition he's probably going to say you 0.001 right you can see so much of the good but in the same way as the he's not willing to lie so at least he's got that sort of thing taken care of 
but he's not willing to take responsibility for his own position yet. He is not failing because of a of too much logic. He's not overthinking it. He's falsely thinking it. He's failing because he hasn't taken the logic to its end. But this reminds me of our earlier comments about Mark, that blindness creeps in when it's about our ego. And if you've set yourself up, if in, if in McPhee's mind, anything that assails his idea of that I am the logic, I am objective, he's blind to, which this is that last step he has to make, yeah. is seeing that blindness. It's causing him to be blind to ransom to his what he's seen to what he's experiencing firsthand all the time yeah he's he's it's like he's the most knowledgeable but also the most blind person in the house at the same right time. he's eating the fruit but because he can't see the tree he won't admit that it exists yeah well i think we should jump to our uh clip from the book where are we going our clip comes from the middle of chapter seven this is when jane is talking to Ransom the Pendragon. I suppose our marriage was just a mistake. The director said nothing. What would you, what would the people you are talking of say about a case like that? I will tell you if you really want to know, said the director. Please, said Jane reluctantly. They would say, he answered, that you do not fail in obedience through lack of love, but have lost love because you never attempted obedience. Something in Jane that would normally have reacted to such a remark with anger or laughter was banished to a remote distance, where she could still, but only just, hear its voice, by the fact that the word obedience, but certainly not obedience to Mark, came over her in that room and in that presence like a strange oriental perfume, perilous, seductive, and ambiguous. Stop it, said the director sharply. Jane stared at him open-mouthed. There were a few moments of silence during which the exotic fragrance faded away. You were saying, my dear, resumed the director. I thought love meant equality, she said, and free companionship. Ah, equality, said the director. We must talk of that some other time. Yeah, why did we choose this clip, Dan? Well, it hits on the themes that you started out with around obedience. And this part, I told you before we started recording, stood out to me. I went back and reread it because I was trying to understand there was this kind of romantic, I guess, erotic moment happening in the room, which the director shuts down. And it was just, it almost felt like a weird direction for it to take it. And he has a line later on, like, you don't understand the tie between obedience and... He says that that obedience and humility are an erotic necessity. Yes. So there was there was just a lot here that I was, I, I guess I just kind of left this part with a little bit of a question mark around what's Lewis trying to teach us or... Yeah, this really brought my mind back to Paralandra and the idea of experiencing pleasures in a non-guarded or corrupt way and how that's difficult for our Thulcandrian minds to even understand. Because when we even hear the word obedience, I think I even have this like repulsion from it. Don't no, obedience can't be a virtue because it's by obedience that so many people have been taken advantage of, especially women, right? Then the history of the whole history of the world is basically men uh, mistreating women. Of course, they should be guarded from obedience that way, right? 
It's interesting. Obedience for me, when I say the phrase obedience to God, gives me no, that, that only seems like a good thing. But when obedience is tied to anything to do with marriage, all the flags go up. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's my modern education. I don't know. Possibly. Well, and maybe it's a education based on observation or knowing your own heart. Are you worthy of being obedient to? I don't know if I am. But that doesn't, that's not an indictment on obedience itself, but on my inability to exercise virtue in stewardship or authority. So ideally, right, if we were like the Pendragon and obedience was something that we could accept without letting the corrupt, what is it, that, that fragrance that starts filling the room. And, and this is an experience where it's like the archetype of Venus, the corrupt version. I think it's in the, in Paralandra at the beginning, it's Ransom talking to Lewis says that like the archetype of every celestial body exists in each. So you have the archon of Mars called Malachandra, but on earth we know him as Mars and all our mythologies about Mars are based on our experience, not with Malachandra himself, but with the mythological presence in our own histories and whatever that power has here. And the same is true for Paralandra that we call Venus and Aphrodite and all of the corruption around that, that in our minds might be more associated with lust than with what the Eros of love is truly intended for that starts entering the room and Ransom will have none of it. So he's not saying stop it to Jane. He's saying stop it to Venus or the archetype of Venus. And then she kind of like wakes up out of it because she was getting caught up almost in the eroticism of the idea of obedience to Ransom, which she didn't have any reservation for which gives some of that understanding you're you're kept from love because of lack of obedience and then as soon as she yields to obedience that aspect of love overcomes her but it's untamed that's the problem in the same way that if you're going to ignore the sentimental and pretend you're above it you're not you're that muscle will atrophy you're more susceptible to it so because she hasn't practiced obedience she doesn't know how to, how to tame the eroticism that comes from it. And you can see that in our own corrupt and filthy and lewd perspective of eroticism in our world. Even the, the concepts of certain types of pornography being like obedience and submission based and that sort of stuff. It's really gross, but it's, it's a corruption of something that is real that friends don't look at each other in the eye. They would be ashamed, right? The reason that we have to be protected from obedience so, so often is because whenever we're entering into relationships, instead of being able to submit and trust, we compete and try to subdue. Hmm. So we're not protected from that inequality. Just like Jane was not prote protected from inequality in her perception of Ivy Mags, just because she considered herself a Democrat. That didn't save her from being 
undemocratic. Yeah, from being undemocratic, from being discriminatory in her perception of people of different classes than her. And in America, we like to pretend that we don't have a class system. And yes, we do. We even make sure that we don't have titles of nobility. And yes, we do. We see that all in our social environment too. And sometimes the idea, I've heard this argument even for the monarchy in the United Kingdom, that one of the reasons is because at least you can be, you can be honest about that class system and then it takes care of a lot of our, in, our inclinations, right? And because we don't have that in the United States, people still operate those positions. It's just celebrities and the wealthy and people start operating in these, filling these class roles because we're pretending that we don't see it or that there is no class divide. So we're more susceptible to it. That's right. I thought it was cool that later on, Jane starts analyzing this love that the directors talk to her about and that she should have for Mark. And she would, I mean, this is a pretty big pendulum swing from, so was my marriage a mistake yeah. to her going home in the four Janes and her realizing that obedience to the director, which to the director means to Maleldil, um, in a opens up her ability to love Mark, which that, that was my question. And when I'm hearing Jane talk to the Pendragon, I'm wondering why are you sending this girl who's, confused but trying to be on the right track back to that guy. I mean, <laughs> this guy's a schmuck. And yet Jane realizes that she can have real love for Mark because of the obedience and love that she has for the director. And that was powerful. It detached the love I have for my wife and and having a complete godly love for her ball is in a hundred percent in my court it has nothing to do with the decisions she makes and until it's a decision that would validate that i'm supposed to stop loving them like the director points out has what has he done to lose your love right um so that that it's just i mean that is incredibly empowering to any spouse in any relationship to know that if you've got your obedience and love aligned properly, that it will answer the questions that don't really have good answers when it comes to how you love that imperfect person that you have uh, made those promises with. Also that love coming from an imperfect person. So <laughs> there's danger in yielding to somebody when you don't have assurances that they'll reciprocate in a righteous way. Hopefully you've practiced that before you've made covenants with somebody. Yeah. I know that sometimes, especially in my um, experience with behavior of children, the sometimes the best way to get the best behavior out of children is to assume that they will behave well and give that expectation that they can be compliant or that they can behave in a good way. Even with my own children, I don't want to tell them that they're, they are behaving badly or that they're bad kids because they might live up to that 
expectation and that label. And it's important that I give them this identity to strive for. We've talked about this before, but when you tell a child that they're good, they'll probably prove you right. And maybe that's true about a spouse as well. If I can assume that my spouse is going to treat me well, if my wife is going to treat me well, then I can maybe yield more. Maybe I can be less critical. Maybe I can be obedient. Maybe I can be less guarded. And it's easier to act in charity to somebody who's not guarded, defensive, and competitive with you. And also, I think if we are trying to act as much as possible in the truth that we have, it does make things that are less truthful and good a vulgarity and more apparent to people. And so by acting like you're saying, less guarded with real love, I think it's an invitation to everyone around us and it can be an invitation to our spouse to, to hopefully join us in trying to be more truthful with each other. I think in the same way, comp competition is contagious and so is vulnerability. Yeah, these are tough chapters and that section itself I know that the first couple times that I read through it, I didn't really understand it. I trusted in the way that Lewis wrote it, that there was something there that I didn't have to be afraid of. And this time through, I really felt obedience as being virtuous, but you need that standard, a belief in a God that is good. And now with that standard and everything being anchored in him, Obedience can be the way to access that power. Well, with that, I think we will wrap it up. Thank you, as always, for being in our book club. We hope that you'll continue with us. Next episode, we will cover chapters 11 through 14 of That Hideous Strength. And if you'd like to participate with comments, questions, criticisms, or corrections, you can email us a message or voice memo at bookclub at mountainair.media, M-T-N-A-I-R. Please subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast app. All right. See you next week. <laughs>